Thursday, the 17th of February, Margaret Child, formerly uh, Director of Research and Library Programs in the National Endowment for the Humanities, and who is now uh, head of the research programs at the Smithsonian Institution Libraries in Washington, will be giving a speech entitled Meditations on the NEH. That will be Thursday, February 17th at 6 o'clock. And those of you who are friends of the Book Arts Press uh, know that this, that the spring series coming up is uh, almost certain to be a very stimulating one indeed. And it will be added to on a number of occasions between now and the uh, beginning of March, I suspect, when I will be sending a final schedule out for the year. Our speaker this evening is no stranger to these shores. William Todd has lectured here uh, several times before, always to our profit, and I see many repeat offenders in the audience tonight, uh, in part for that reason, I'm sure, in, in part because of the great interest in very early printing one finds on almost every side these days. As I told one of my courses in the history of the book last week, I barely dared to speak about any printing before 1460 because every time I picked up something it had it all changed again. As such, it's particularly nice to welcome Mr. William Todd, who will be speaking on recent research on Gutenberg. William Todd. I believe it was just five years ago that I was in this very room when we were all oriented eastward on that occasion and when I had the temerity to deliver a few remarks on the Nixon White House transcripts, an example of late printing and certain subterfuge there too. I return to you now with some considerable diffidence because while I might have professed some expertise on the transcripts, I profess no expertise whatsoever on the Gutenberg Bible, but I was <laughs> led into this report uh, almost inexorably. Inexorably because uh, as a practicing bibliogra bibliographer, I have indicated uh, on every possible occasion in my university at Texas that I am not at all concerned with literary criticism and thus will not uh, uh, encroach upon the prerogatives of my fellow academics in the English department. In fact, I advise my students that if I catch them reading a book, they will be penalized. <clears throat> so this safely removes me, you see, from the uh, uh, particular uh, areas of specialty of, of my colleagues, and they allow me to go on my merry way, not at all understanding what I'm up to, which is perhaps just as well. Since you do have in front of you a certain document, a Xerox copy of two photographs, perhaps I may be permitted at the very beginning to point out a few peculiarities without referring any of them to your uh, more considered attention, uh, since that would be deferred until I get a little further on in my paper. Let me then simply report to you that the five lines, both columns represented at the top of page are photographed from the University of Texas copy, and that the five lines of corresponding passage 
uh, and the lower part of your document come from the John Rylands uh, University Library copy. Uh, it would appear from the two photographs that we are looking at dissimilar uh, representations. It seems to be a somewhat wider margin, inner margin, in the lower portion than there is in the upper, but that is a <coughs> deceptive result from differing photographic processes. And so, in a way, this is an illustration of how unreliable facsimiles can be, even though the photographer in each case was carefully instructed to produce uh, an absolute contact uh, print. Uh, again, just by uh, way of preliminary, uh, I was reading that sumptuous coffee table volume recently issued by the Library of Congress. Uh, taking us on a ramble through the treasures of the Library of Congress. And you may remember, if you've seen that splendid volume, that the first chapter is devoted to earliest books. And uh, there, in several places, uh, reproduced the uh, vellum copy of the Gutenberg Bible in that library. There is a passing reference there, which um, caused me to smile a little, uh, a reference to the fact that the University of Texas paid $2,400,000 for its copy, uh, a mere paper copy, uh, as the Library of Congress referred to it. Uh, it's all a matter of definition as to what constitutes the most uh, valuable copies of the 48 uh, or so in existence we would consider our mere paper copy to be infinitely superior to the Library of Congress vellum copy uh, for the simple reason advanced at the time we were negotiating the purchase, for the simple reason that it is replete with annotation and annotations and marks of every sort, thousands of them, uh, all of which will demand continued research, which will go on, I'm sure, for decades to come. To illustrate in a very small measure what we can find in this mere paper copy, uh, and from the minute specimen just now in front of you, if you will look very carefully, you will see uh, the fourth line down left column uh, in our copy a little mark that resembles a seven. Do you all, do you all spot that? Uh, that is a peculiar punctuation mark, <coughs> sometimes referred to by a Latin phrase, punctus flexus, uh, which was employed only by the Carthu Carthusian and Cistercian uh, orders, and thus serves uh, in some measure to localize the origin of our copy, or where it was first used. Uh, I have also observed that that little seven, when it's entered in manuscript, is entered only at certain uh, positions where Gutenberg has already employed a colon, and so it is in the example uh, now before you. If you look very carefully again at this mere paper <laughs> specimen, uh, you will see also here and there, again in the Texas copy only, little check or accent marks above certain words. Uh, there may be th three or four or more here in these five lines. I'm sure you can spot several of them. These two uh, uh, assist in the now in the pronunciation of the Latin. A further clue, it seems to us, that uh, this Bible, <coughs> uh, at its first locale at any rate, uh, was used by readers unfamiliar with Latin. Thirdly, 
if you look very carefully at any of the T's, and there must be 20 or 30 of them, and compare the T in this upper specimen with the T in the lower specimen, you will see that the upper specimen T's all seem to be somewhat elongated in the upper bar. Do you notice that? All of this also is entered in manuscript, but entered so carefully it was quite a while before we noticed it. Uh, there are thousands of such marks, and what this may signify, I have no idea. It could well be that the monk performing this act was engaged indeed in an act of piety or an act of penance and was here making the sign of the cross several thousand times over. He persisted at least through leaf 60 and then intermittently after that on certain passages which I suppose had a certain significance for him and then he was absolved from all guilt from that time onward. So I point these matters out uh, simply to illustrate that our copy has much to exhibit which the vellum copy at the Library of Congress or the John Ryland's copy here uh, cannot demonstrate. You will all finally observe that uh, there is again in manuscript at the very top, uh, just above the top line right column of our copy, uh, the preposition in. There's constant correction of our text in this way. In fact, uh, a careful analysis of one book only, 2 Samuel, indicates that there have been 119 manuscript emendations in our copy, and that of these 119, 29 are unrecorded in all biblical criticism, unrecorded in the variorum text now being issued indirectly under the auspices of the Vatican. Well, so much by way of introduction to our mere paper specimen, the, uh, to which I will return, of course, in due time. It was suggested that I might properly address myself to recent research on the Gutenberg Bible, uh, much of it m m certainly more profound than anything uh, I have attempted. And I would suppose that the word recent in this long sweep of time something over 500 years, uh, might well extend to everything that's been done in, in this century. And if we allow that extension, then I perhaps can review for you very briefly of five different representations. Uh, the first representing the very beginning of what the Germans like to call systematic or synchronistic uh, bibliography an endeavor which uh, got underway in 1890 with the work of Karl Ziatsko, uh, and then it later involved such notable figures as Otto Hoop, Gottfried Zedler, and most notable of all, Paul Schwenke, who in 1900 uh, issued a major treatise uh, on the Gutenberg Bible, and then uh, finished yet another treatise in 1921, the year of his death, which was published in 1923. Of these three or four major figures then, <coughs> uh, uh, all concerned with uh, a study of the Gutenberg Bible, it's Schwenke, of course, who has had the greatest influence in this first group of researchers. And it's Schwenke, 
who is summarized in the British Museum catalog, volume one, in a long paragraph on the Gutenberg Bible, where in that catalog his two principal contentions uh, are briefly stated. Uh, the one contention that the Bible itself was divided into some ten sections for the purpose of printing, and that altogether as many as six presses were engaged uh, in that operation. The uh, second major point made by Schwenke as early as 1900 and elaborated in 1923, uh, this to explain the 40 and 41 line aberrations in the copy, or in all copies of the earliest setting, that uh, this was accomplished by <coughs> repeated filing of the type. These uh, two major conclusions of Schwenke, uh, buttressed by the investigation of the several other people I've already mentioned, uh, and so summarized now in the British Museum catalog, it represent the very core, you might say, of uh, bibliographical pronouncements. And I have uh, discovered, since I got involved in this, that certain American experts, uh, <clears throat> the knowledge of uh, this matter extends only to the summary account uh, in English in the British Museum catalog. It's been taken as an article of faith, or shall we say two articles of faith, the one, the six press theory, and the other, the repeated filing theory. So then, uh, over that period of years, 1890, shall we say, till 1923, we have had a, a position uh, presented, maintained, steadily consolidated, and uh, codified chiefly by Paul Schwenke. I now would suggest to you that as research gets underway yet again in the new generation, shall we say, generation of biblical bibliographical scholars on this side of the, of the Atlantic, all of the major premises represented by these early patriarchs uh, may <coughs> prove to be untenable. The second contribution to uh, Gutenberg bibliography is represented very recently, 1979, in the Commenter Band, a very large volume issued as a companion to the facsimile edition issued that same year by Idian Verlag uh, in Munich. Uh, in which volume one will find six separate essays by as many as the six experts, all representing, as I was informed just this last Friday, uh, the so-called Berlin School of Gutenberg scholarship. I didn't know there were two schools of scholarship uh, in Germany, but I am told there are. These six scholars then are all of the Berlin group, so to speak, and all of the Munich group uh, were not invited to participate in the volume. So we have yet to hear, I gather, from the Munich uh, contingent. Um, the matters discussed in the commenter band uh, range from uh, a study of the illumination, a study of the text, a study of the binding, a study of the table of rubrics, uh, and, and then chiefly, for our purposes, uh, an account of the printing itself and the associated chronological problems. 
this account presented by uh, Dr. Severin Corston. In reading Corston's essay, the vital one so far as I'm concerned, I detected no serious revision of what Paul Schwenke had said in 1923. And what Schwenke had said in 1923 really doesn't differ materially from what Schwenke said in 1900. So I would uh, assume that this then represents only a further consolidation uh, of the positions taken uh, low these many years. Corston did make one slight adjustment on the basis of no particular evidence that I can find. Uh, he did say that Schwenke's notion, which he reports he originally got from Zedler, notion that there were six presses proved to be an embarrassment to bibliographical scholarship, uh, and he therefore proposed only three presses, and I will allude to that in my paper. Three presses, each of them, <coughs> by his theory, requiring two different compositors. The third approach to this whole matter, though it does not directly pertain to the Gutenberg Bible, certainly must be mentioned uh, in this company, and that's Dr. Paul Needham's remarkable article in the most recent issue of PBSA on Johannes Gutenberg and the Catholican Press, uh, where indeed he does establish, I think beyond all peradventure, that there were three separate printings of the Catholicon, all bearing the same date, but printed 1460, about 1469, 1472, these three on three different kinds of paper, and uh, printed uh, through the use of paired lines or slugs or a kind of stereotype. I consider this article really devastating. Uh, it certainly will demolish many of the pretensions advanced by Professor Picard and other uh, German scholars <coughs> who have had much to say very recently. You can <coughs> read that for yourself, and I suggest that you do read it and reread it. I've read it three times uh, at your earliest opportunity. That then just out in the most recent issue of PBSA. Within the next several issues of PBSA, <coughs> surely before the end of the year, there will be another remarkable pronouncement. Uh, this uh, perhaps entirely unknown to you. Uh, this will come from <coughs> the University of California, Davis, and the chief uh, author will be Professor Richard N. Schwab, S-C-H-W-A-B, professor in the history department there. Uh, Professor Schwab, along with <coughs> six or eight uh, colleagues representing various disciplines, have for the last several years <coughs> uh, been making use of their cyclotron at the University of California, Davis, <coughs> applying the cyclotron now for the first time ever for bibliographical purposes. Through the use of the cyclotron, by passing beams, concentrated beams, through both the ink and the paper, and knocking off a few atoms here and there, uh, and uh, thus registering on the plate underneath a uh, representation of the chemical constituency of the ink and or the paper, have discovered that Gutenberg's ink is unique. 
It contains a high concentration of lead and copper, not to be found in any other ink, not even the ink used by Schiffer, his uh, immediate successor. Uh, moreover, uh, they have determined this early that uh, as Gutenberg proceeded with his work year after year, he necessarily had to mix up new batches of ink. And while the concentration of lead and copper is st still represents a very high quotient, there are differing ratios between those two principal constituents of the ink. This, I think, is an enormous advance over anything we've ever <coughs> encountered before in our study of the Bible. It will enable us, it seems to me, finally to determine the progress of this book through the press, to come to a, most clo a much closer approximation of the duration of work, uh, perhaps a more accurate determination of the number of presses, whether six or three or four, as Professor Painter once suggested. Uh, it will enable us to decide uh, with some assurance exactly what Gutenberg printed with his very expensive ink as against the cheap substitutes by Scherfer and others. Uh, it will enable us to identify the work of other printers. It also, of course, has far-reaching application when it comes to uh, authenticating the p paintings of the time, whether indeed it's Durer or, or other uh, paintings. Uh, once one can uh, fingerprint, so to speak, the chemical constituency of the ink, or now the paint used throughout the 15th century. So we have opened up to us vistas which are beyond our present conception, and I... Uh, again must urge you that when that issue PBSA comes out to look at that and read that article some several times. Then having now mentioned four particular uh, contributions uh, past, present, and pending, I come to my own uh, effort which uh, I present to you with some considerable diffidence since, as I have already intimated, it's uh, somewhat beyond my own uh, <coughs> particular expertise. However, if I uh, do abide by my own uh, uh, argument that a bibliographer can deal with all books in any time, in any subject, and on any language, I am perforce, you see, obligated to attend to this matter which came to my attention uh, some months ago. Uh, indeed, I uh, have learned in my recent work to make careful records of times and dates when I stumble upon something that's disconcerting. And so I can tell you that all this started on the 22nd of October 1980 at 11 o'clock in the morning when, along with a graduate student, <coughs> I was puzzling away through the first volume of uh, our copy taking some millimeter measurements down at the bottom for no particular reason, I guess. Uh, but then on this certain leaf, leaf 40, uh, I happened to glance up at the top of the page and here boldly outlined uh, there on the top of the page were those several marks which you see in your Xerox copy, two circles out on either side of the columns, uh, and a relabeling of the lines BAC to indicate that the lines had been transposed. What immediately caught my attention, of course, was that the same accident, however occasioned, uh, was occurring also in exactly the same position over in the right column as well as the left. 
Uh, this was then at 11 o'clock in the morning. At 12 o'clock, I joined my wife, Ann Bowden, for lunch in great excitement, told her all about it. And we both immediately came to a certain conclusion. And after all these many months, I have not changed my conclusion one whit. It was an instant decision on my part. And while I have benefited greatly from much advice uh, <coughs> over this period of time, uh, I have so far had no one in a, in a position to tell me that my hypothesis is wrong. Nobody can uh, offer any other solution. Still, as I say, I was uh, quite diffident about all this. I knew I was getting in much over my head. And so on the last day of the year, 31st of December, I uh, presented an informal talk before the Colophon Club in San Francisco, uh, before a group of experts there, including Bernard Rosenthal, Adrian Wilson, and others, and pleaded with them for some solution other than the one I had was suggesting, uh, again, there's no alternative advanced. On the 11th of August, the following year, 81, I had a conference with Dr. Hans Halby at the Gutenberg Museum in Mainz and showed him a specimen, the very same specimen you have in front of you, again advanced my speculations on the matter, and he had nothing to suggest either other than say probably what we had was a proof. By fortunate circumstance, several days later in Leipzig, I met the principal authority there, this same Dr. Severin Corsten, who had written the chapter in the 1979 Cometer Ban. My conversation with him was not too enlightening because I speak no German and he spoke no English, but we had an interlocutor between us. And I gathered from what he was muttering uh, there was only one response to all this, and that was mistake, mistake, mistake. Uh, but still, no counter-suggestion as to what I was proposing. So then, time has passed, and I have finally formulated, in I think a somewhat convincing matter, what all this is about. And I would now presume to read you, at least here and there, uh, this long proclamation which I have which I have prepared. Uh, it's, I think, reasonable to suppose that these markings in red, which you uh, see now in black in the Xerox copy, were done probably by the very first reader of this copy in whatever monastery it might have been. And I think it might be well for us in our imagination to go back to the year 1456 and stand in, I will act the role of the monk uh, and see exactly what's happened. Uh, he is then, as, he's, as he finishes leaf 30 uh, in the 23rd chapter of Exodus, as he now comes to the recto of leaf 40, now before you, uh, he is concluding in that left column the 11th verse beginning at quickquid as you see and so on if we put that in English it would read and what they leave the beasts of the field shall eat period in like next line in like manner thou shalt deal with thy vineyard and with thy olive yard period next line that thine ox and thine ass may rest. And at that point, he stopped 
in utter confusion because he had started, you see, in the middle of a sentence. But then looking on to the next line, he reads, Six days thou shalt do thy work, and on the seventh thou shalt rest. The sentence itself, you see, has been transposed in those two lines, the first part of the sentence coming in what is presently the fourth line, and the latter part of the sentence in the third. So, all a tremble, I suppose at that time he reached for his inkhorn and uh, there set things right, drawing those little uh, curves at each side of the, of the column and relabeling uh, the several lines affected as you see in front of you. He then goes down <coughs> to the foot of the column, 42nd line, and starts his reading now at the top of the right column. Uh, <clears throat> where he is now in the midst of verse 26. Once more, if we may represent this in English, it starts out at the top there, infertile nor barren in thy land, the number of, next line, thy days I will fulfill, my terror will I, next line, the people to whom thou shalt come, all. Uh, next line, send before thee and will destroy all. Once more, you see, a subversion of the text, something which I imagine this monk would regard as sacrilege and would tend to confirm his suspicions of this first printed book uh, <coughs> if uh, he was not already doubtful of, of the whole process. Again, he grabs his, uh, his inkhorn and once again makes the necessary emendations. And now that he's outlined the text, we have in front of us what we may call our present bibliographical sermon. To begin on common ground, as we look at this, to begin on common ground, we will agree that derangements of type, though rarely encountered at any time, are not unknown in printing history. The earliest instance of this kind heretofore recorded involving us here two contiguous lines, but in the left column only, occurs in, in the 1460 Cathalicon. Uh, one or another of those three versions that Dr. Paul Needham has analyzed. But all of this very early and uh, shortly after this prior event in the Gutenberg Bible. The latest transposition in a modern text, oddly affecting material five lines apart, but in the right column only, has appeared <clears throat> just within the last several months in an issue of PMLA. Both of these transpositions and others which might come to mind are easily explained as the manual dislocation of type lines properly ordered when set but accidentally, accidentally disordered as the lines were imposed or reimposed for press work. Except for the disruptive accident is also accepted the text always remains in consecutive literal order from original writing to later type composition, imposition, subsequent printing, and final reading. Whether these considerations apply to the present case, one early appearing in the first printed book now demands close attention. The first difference, setting this remarkable accident apart from all others, is that the disorder appears in both columns on the page and within each at exactly the same position. It is most unlikely that these disruptions, identically aligned, occurred at different times. First the one on the left, 
than the one on the right, and that their later conjuncture is merely accidental. Counting the whole range of column lines throughout the book, there is only one chance in 104,571 of any such coincidence. Against such overwhelming odds, we are therefore forced to the conclusion that this is a single accident, simultaneously affecting both portions, and arising from one of two causes, and I can think of no third cause. The first and rather unex and unexpected situation resides very early in the process, just after composition and during the original act of imposition. The second and seemingly more plausible occasion comes somewhat later, after the type had been correctly imposed, but then for some reason was removed and transposed upon its return to press. Between these alternatives, the initial circumstance has not been eagerly received by adherence to conventional precepts uh, in all of my conversations with the authorities. And any commentary on its various implications will therefore be deferred until it remains eventually as the only credible explanation. Supporting any theory, even the first cause presumption, is the generally recognized fact that in earliest printing there was no vertical bar separating the two type columns, and thus no hindrance to an operation, early or late, extending across the page. In Mainz through 1470, at least, the intervening space was created with blank quadrants. These entered line by line if the compositor is proceeding directly across the page, or perhaps all at once if the compositor imposes the second column only after finishing the first. In either event, the visible result is the same as you have it in front of you. Perfect alignment at the far left margin, where the type abuts a solid bar, and a somewhat irregular alignment at all other boundaries where quadrants have formed the margin. With this marginal practice sufficiently assessed, let us now proceed to reject the second alternative, that is, the one supposing a later act transposing type after it had been correctly imposed. To ascertain the true sequence of events, I first noted several other peculiarities on this leaf 40 recto, personally checked these against the copies at Frankfurt and Mainz, as well as against facsimiles of the vellum exemplar at Berlin, and then forwarded to the custodians of all other copies reproductions of the variant states, uncorrected and corrected, together with a questionnaire, which, as I requested, was to be filled out and returned. Quite undaunted, the librarians responded in a superlative manner, often sending me more information than I required. I might pause here to remark that uh, uh, from Pelpen, Poland, I received not my little questionnaire back at first, but a small booklet all in Polish on, on their copy, which I indeed was very pleased to have, but I would much prefer to have my questionnaire back, which was more important to me. What had happened was that the letter containing my questionnaire uh, sent airmail first class was intercepted by the Polish censor and had been opened and uh, examined and then closed again with a staple and a stamp put on the, uh, put on the opening. Uh, apparently the censor regarded any comment on the Gutenberg Bible as <coughs> inoffensive and no danger to the regime. 
as a result of, of all of these inquiries then and all of these uh, replies, I was able to determine some four different particulars here. Uh, one, except for these two transposed lines, three, four, uh, there seems to be no alteration of the text on leaf 40 recto, and hence no reason to suppose that midway in the printing the press was stopped, the type forms unlocked, and these lines then later disordered in the course of amending some other matter. Two, the University of Texas copy is unique in representing this transposition, all, the, all other copies commonly exemplifying the corrected order. Three, the priority of the Texas copy is clearly indicated by the fact that, and here you will have to closely scrutinize your specimen, the fact that the first line left column here extending somewhat beyond the right margin is better justified in the other corrected copies. Can you determine that for yourself? Though very slight, the shift is perceptible and deliberate, involving the removal of several hair spaces, one of them evidently between quicquid and reliquum, and another after the eye and foot. Four, priority is also indicated less certainly by the rapid disintegration of the hook above eye in requiescat, you will see a definite hook there in the Texas representation of that word. It's the third word, third line in the Texas copy. You see the eye, the hook above the eye. In the Texas copy, where this word is misplaced, the hook is in perfect condition. In the others, where the hook, now that the lines have been reordered, where the hook now abuts the descender P of operabarus, continual friction between the two letters or some depression of the type below causes the point A still to appear but faintly, B to break in the middle of the arch, C to exhibit indistinctly only the right fragment of the arch, or D as you have it in your Xerox specimen to disappear entirely. Rapid disintegration of that hook. Cumulatively all this evidence so carefully defined by my observant correspondence establishes as the only reasonable hypothesis the first alternative proposed above, original composition not proceeding as we would read it, down one column line by line, but continually extending across two columns, or as here illustrated in Exodus 23, from the beginning of verse 12 to mid-sentence in verse 27. Again, deferring, if we may, <coughs> any argument for such extraordinary non-sequential composition. Perhaps we should consider first how this transposition could have occurred. I then allude at some length to all the accounts of composition as they may be found in Moxon's mechanical exercise and so forth and so on, but find the best account, at least best for my purposes, in the Diderot Encyclopedia of 1769, where you have an engraving of two compositors at work uh, one actually composing the type, and the other, once the type is composed, taking the line, a single line, to what corresponded to the form, uh, and there justifying it uh, <clears throat> line by line. Uh, I am, have at least convinced myself that uh, this indeed is what had happened. At some point, this assistant is called away momentarily returns to find both sticks awaiting imposition. 
and as exhibited in the Texas copy, mistakenly picks up the stick for the fourth line before the one for the third. As soon as the impression was started, however, and at least one sheet printed, that is the unique Texas exemplar, the error was detected and all later press work suspended until the lines were reimposed correctly. Uh, once that idea is advanced, I'm then in a position to settle a matter which I think was quite confused in Dr. Corston's article in 1979, where he posits two compositors to a press, having reduced the number of presses from six to three, uh, at least in terms of workflow and so on. He still needs more activity, but now among the compositors. If you have two compositors, both working from the same case in the manner I have suggested in tandem, uh, the work can proceed efficiently, but I see no, can find no uh, suitable explanation for the procedure that Corston is advancing. So far, then, I have, with some confidence, uh, gone through four considerations. We have here ocular proof of the disorder. Uh, we have, secondly, a statistical determination that the lines were transposed simultaneously. Well, thirdly, we have adjacent type evidence, which would seem to indicate that the Texas state precedes the other state. And four, we are able to summon up from the French Encyclopedia an efficient compositorial procedure, which would account for this particular misadventure. If all of those preconditions or suppositions are allowed, then we must say further that it would be impossible for the compositor to set across the page from one line to the corresponding line in the other column. Impossible for him to do this unless he is following a pattern already established and so producing non-sequentially, not in the order we would read it, but non-sequentially, a type facsimile of the specific manuscript selected this copy for the printed work. And with that comment, I go off the deep end because I'm in direct conflict with all theories that have been advanced in the last 90 years. Any comment on facsimile reproduction, this radical notion was brought to an end in 1923 at the very start of Schwenke's Ergonzugsband, uh, which I remind you was published two years after his death. There, on page 5, note 5, he abruptly declares, quote, in English, the frequently expressed thought that Gutenberg would have feigned or imitated manuscript manufacture is rejected. He offers no reason as to why he summarily rejects it right there at the beginning of the book, but it's very convenient for him to do so because all of his suppositions from that point on uh, revolve around the idea that what Gutenberg has accomplished is unique and unlike anything ever seen before. Whereas if you argue that uh, Gutenberg is simply counterfeiting a manuscript, then of course you're positing quite a, quite a different notion that Gutenberg was imitating everything that went before. I did not at first understand why Schwenke was uh, so ready to denounce what had been once expressed so frequently, but in um, the 1979 commentary by Corston, I found a clue 
and that is in Corston's statement, quote, Otto Hoop has energetically disproved the theory that the intention was to imitate in every detail a manuscript of the time, and this is no longer seriously assumed. Well, Otto Hoop's discourse came out in 1917, and thus I have the link. Schwenke is merely accepting Hoop's uh, declaration uh, offered several years before. Uh, it, at this point, it was necessary for me to deal with Otto Hoop, and that was rather easy to do because most of you will remember it was this same Otto Hoop who, who was advancing the notion that it was the so-called Constance Missile that preceded the Gutenberg Bible as the first printed book, uh, a theory which, of course, has been completely discredited. Now this same Otto Hoop is being cited again as... Uh, <coughs> the ultimate authority for disregarding any manuscript precedent for the printing of the Gutenberg Bible. Uh, Severin Corsten, relying upon Hoop in 1917 and now on Schwenke in 1923, feels it quite unnecessary to say anything further on the matter. The matter, uh, as far as uh, counterfeiting of uh, a type facsimile, this is far back as 1858 when in Samuel Lee Sotheby's Principia Typographia, Sotheby, in a footnote, offers the opinion, it's interesting how footnotes are so important in tracing this matter. Uh, and anything that seems to be offbeat or contrary to the accepted notion is dropped into a footnote. Uh, it merely confirms my long-standing notion that footnotes are far more interesting most of the time than the text. Anyhow, Sotheby in 1858 drops a footnote where the opinion of an unidentified expert is reported, and I quote, our printer, our printer has suggested that as the type is supposed to be a facsimile of some of the manuscripts of the period, and that much certainly is allowed, that the individual type sorts uh, are imitative of the uh, missile bookhand at the time. But if that is so, it is possible that the Mazarine Bible may correspond exactly in dimensions of page and number of lines in each with some manuscript copy of the Bible then extant. So here in 1858, I had the old idea, you see, represented in an, by an anonymous expert in a footnote, uh, an idea which Sotheby himself immediately picks up at great length and applies it to the problem of the irregular lines, the 40 and 41 lines, as being there because the manuscript had 40 and 41 lines at that point. Uh, I then go on it again at some length to point out that much before Gutenberg's time, and indeed much after his time, the practice of imitating prior work was indeed standard procedure from manuscript into print and from print to print, uh, direct copying, uh, no deviation whatsoever. There scores of examples that one might cite, but I was content only to cite 10 or 12. In now, as you may suspect, in my endeavor to ally Gutenberg with standard practice, prevailing practice in his own time, I, I think, and I would say, that Gutenberg <clears throat> surely would recognize the considerable advantage, if not the compelling necessity, of duplicating his manuscript copy in its varying structure most of the examples just cited, and in many others, copy was divided to permit simultaneous work. He 
either by scribe or later by printer. And such divisions usually resulted in an irregular choir with more or less than the normal count of leaves, where one job ended and another had already begun. Quite providentially then, this first printer, already preoccupied with the difficulties attending his typographical invention, would be inclined to follow a safe precedent already established and not on his first try to strike off all unprepared in some uncharted direction. Now, there are many parts of the Bible, particularly where there are considerable complexities uh, in layout, uh, the space to be provided for rubrics, the liturgical arrangement of the Psalms, uh, spaces for Hebrew names in the Lamentations of Jeremiah, and so forth and so on. Uh, here then, in every one of these cases, the problems uh, where they existed had already been resolved uh, in the manuscript, and uh, he could simply copy them as they were presented before him. As we proceed now in the last phase of our discussion to reconsider certain categories of disorder elsewhere in the Bible beyond the one in front of you, it is well to keep firmly in mind the opposing tendencies of these two hypotheses, as each and early instance, every instance will prompt a contrary explanation. Under the old postulate, steadily formulated and refined by all the bibliographers from 1890 to 1979, the prior manuscript is of no consequence. Gutenberg is solely responsible for the, and I quote, artistic transformation of that copy and all peculiarities in the work are therefore attributable to his printing office. Under the new postulate, which I am now advancing, the prior copy, as frequently indicated in other situations, is again here a compelling determinant. Gutenberg is utterly dependent upon it, and almost every disorder now exhibited may therefore have resided originally in his prototype. Furthermore, in this view, this later view, one of the few anomalies that must be assigned to Gutenberg's office, since it could not have occurred in his manuscript copy, are the transposed lines on this single page, the occasion for all the present argument. Between these opposing theorems, here advanced to the extreme, lie all the facts pertaining to Gutenberg's extraordinary achievement. But exactly where that evidence may repose, in time now lost, we may never know. I then go into other irregularities, among them the problem of the irregular choirs, that is, sections containing more or less than the normal ten-leaf count, and discover in there a great disarray, which I don't think would have uh, resulted had, been, had Gutenberg been in charge of the operation. But if he is dependent on the manuscript, then I can see the chaotic result here duplicated uh, in the printing process. Uh, there are also other irregularities, among them the blank pages. There are quite a few blank pages which cannot be satisfactorily accounted for. Again, if we assume, according to the German exports, that Gutenberg was in command uh, of his materials. But uh, if he's not in command and simply imitating a manuscript, uh, then we can uh, accept the disorder as we find it. Particularly interesting in this connection are two blanks before and after uh, 
three Esdras, one of the apocryphal books. Now, if Gutenberg were as independent of copy precedent as, as has been supposed, and so free to order his type in the most efficient way, he could easily have moved four Esdras forward, eliminated both blanks, and thus reduced to a normal ten-leaf section one of these abnormal choirs. That he chose not to regulate these matters can only signify his cautious dependency upon copy, however disorganized. With the large blanks taken care of, I then go on to the small blanks, <coughs> portions of a page left blank, and there are quite a few of these, of which I exclude six, but still there are three little blanks remaining, and in each of these three cases there is sufficient space to move forward the beginning lines of the next prologue or the next book. You can look elsewhere in the volumes and see that Gutenberg has done that, or rather that the manuscript had done that. Uh, but here, where he had the opportunity to do so, thus save space, save paper, uh, it's not done. So once more, uh, there is an irregularity that's being perpetuated in the printed work, uh, an irregularity which could very easily have been cleared up if he were not dependent upon manuscript copy. I then, having surveyed these several kinds of disorder, come back to Mr. Sotheby and to his work in 1858 and quote him in his own right and not his anonymous informant in that footnote. Here Sotheby remarks, quote, the fact that the first ten pages differ in the number of the lines from the remaining pages of the work shows either that the printer at the commencement of his undertaking had not finally made up his mind as to the plan he would adopt in the execution of his task, or that the diversity in the number of lines existed in the manuscript from which he composed the Bible. So the alternatives clearly presented here, you see, in 1858, and you now know where, which side I'm standing. This passage, earlier cited without comment, of course refers somewhat inaccurately to the first nine pages containing only 40 lines each, a tenth extending, extending to 41, then after a long run in the normal count of 42, to seven more of 40 lines only. Without further ado, let us now consider the 42-line hypothesis as earlier developed by Schwenke in 1900 and finally elaborated by Corsten in 1979. Well, all this, what all this amounts to is uh, this business of filing down the type. Uh, Gutenberg not knowing what he was doing and twice uh, filing it down so that he eventually ends up uh, able to produce 42 lines in the same space originally occupied by 40. All of this, mind you, to effect on each occasion, as I worked it out, 2.5% saving in the paper. All of this done with such accuracy, amounting to a millionth, about a tenth of a millimeter on each occasion, uh, <clears throat> that uh, it passes all understanding. All this stupendous labor, done twice over, with unimaginable precision, I'm becoming rhetorical now, with unimaginable precision for such tremendous economies, has left on the types some evidential traces, we, or so we are told. In the lyrical language of a later commentator, when viewed under microscopes, the affected metal exhibits, quote, very faint but unmistakable blurs, which when enlarged were shown to be parallel lines. These evidence of the scraping, you see. 
These are as telltale as the striation marks which are sometimes detected on outcropping bedrock on hilltops that were once plowed over by a glacier in the Ice Age. End quote. Unfortunately, when viewed again now under magnifiers at Texas, all these glacial strata, these enormous bibliographical mirages have completely disappeared. Together with Mr. John Chalmers, librarian of our Humanities Research Center, I have carefully scrutinized every letter on the suspect pages, first with an 8-power, then with a 20-power lens, only to discover infrequently three insignificant kinds of imperfection, none in any way resembling parallel lines. They're little dots, they're little flecks, they're little fractures in the type going in one direction or another, and that's it. Inherently, then, the old rationale so often reiterated is preposterous, and any evidence for it, even when extolled in the most grandiose phraseology about glacial ice ages, is non-existent. Against it, I must further quote that Schwenka himself, the great archdeacon of all these matters, chief apostle of this doctrine, in an account still ignored by his later disciples, I hear mean Corston in 1979, finally in 1923, in the publication two years after his death, retracted all that he had first proclaimed in 1900. And no one has ever read this, apparently. So I will read it to you in English. How to explain technically the foregoing, all this filing, remains debatable. It certainly does. As a non-technician, following the appearance of the printing on the cited pages, I have assumed that Gutenberg compressed his types partly and then brought them through planing or grinding the upper sides, first to the 41 line, then further to the 42 line shank height. This seems also the easiest way to explain the strange intermediate and trial stage of the 41 line page. However, present day typecasting experts regard this procedure as impossible or at least as so laborious that a new casting would have been preferable. And Schwenke's quote. Let us therefore accept the judgment of Schwenke's own experts and again declare the whole operation as impossible and trust that we hear nothing more of it. The dismissal of the last argument opposing in any way the concept of facsimile printing permits us to assess finally the several remaining inferences in the new proposition. Unless other evidence appears to the contrary, beyond all the facts now known and here reviewed, we may revert to Sotheby's 1858 premise and assume that, from the outset, Gutenberg knew perfectly well what he was doing, and so completely avoided all the desperate expedients of planing, grinding, filing, and otherwise reshaping the materials invented for the job. Better than other specimens that might have been tentatively considered, the manuscript copy eventually chosen as Gutenberg's exemplar, ideally suited his purpose, and the type so meticulously wrought, inappropriately minimal size, also conformed precisely to that objective. Except for the 17 pages of lesser line count, his manuscript was regularly of 42 lines, or remarkably 98.7% uniform. Thus to spread out the few irregular and lesser lines, all Gutenberg need do was to insert between them space lines or leads. Relatively thick ones, where the 40 line was to be extended to 42 line length, considerably narrower, narrower ones, 
where the R41 line was to be similarly extended. That one odd transitional page that so confounded Schwenka, as he appreciated, as Gutenberg appreciated, was the ingenious work of the scribe, here so modulating his writing as not to disconcert the reader by any sudden shift on facing pages from early to final form. I then go into an, an analysis of the kind of leading that would be required and discover that the larger leads were, would be readily available at that time, and the thinner leads amounting to 0.08 millimeters between each line of type uh, did exist and could be found right at the University of Texas on a vellum manuscript copy of the Bible. Moreover, as to the practice of leading, we have further word now here, not directly from Sotheby in 1858, but from a French bibliophile, uh, Auguste Bernard in 1853, who is the first, as far as I know, to suggest that Gutenberg might indeed have been letting out uh, his copy uh, to achieve that 40-41 line uh, result. I quote Bernard at length, but then necessarily have to observe that Bernard, back in 1853, has things backwards. He considers the 42 line setting as the first and the 4041 line a deceptive act on the part of Schiffer. What Barnard, Bernard has here first suggested is dependent upon that supposition at once discredited by Sotheby. My third and final addendum is thus to the effect that as further investigation has amply proved the regular 42 line setting throughout constitutes the later issue. That's the one point on which I agree with my predecessors and the only one. On the evidence, originally, of two disordered lines, those two before you, we have now in all essentials accounted for the entire printing of Gutenberg's Bible. Hitherto, in ignorance of this trivial disorder, this slight indication of what went on before printing began, scholars have progressively formulated a rationale of such complexity as to set this work apart from all the ordinary routines evident in early book production, whether in script or in print. Gutenberg thus emerges as the inventor, not only of the materials and the technique, but of the book itself, one then regarded as an extraordinary phenomenon, completely unlike any other, and therefore subject in vacuo to the most elaborate analyses. Against all the difficulties inherent to these abstruse theories there now obtrudes one single fact, which, if rightly interpreted, allows for every imagined crooks an easy explanation. Hence, for this great achievement, as for certain mathematical demonstrations, the attempt here has been to discover, among supposedly intractable, intractable matters, an elegant simplicity, a self-evident method requiring no further argument. Whether that attempt, my attempt, has succeeded, has succeeded, the future will determine. Thank you.
I have a schoolboy question to ask of my own. When we go to the uh, Bookhart's Presses, I hope you all will for a glass of wine uh, and other things to drink, but only the usual things to eat. Uh, after the formal part of these proceedings, you will see Brian Johnson and his wife-to-be desperately setting their wedding invitation. In making suggestions as to the correction of some of his text, I pointed out that the 1618 Baskerville that we have in the press room that he's using has an ST, has an ST ligature and suggested, and indeed did, the act of moving out S and T and replacing it with ST ligature with the result that I made another mistake. And the text came out of FIR space ST ligature instead of what it should have been. Now, would it not have been possible if I had been setting, in fact, the Gutenberg text in columns and had made a mistake with the arrangement of my lines in the left-hand column and was properly reprimanded by my boss for this and told to fix it quick, would it not have been possible for me in my haste simply to go in, count 17 lines down in the second column and make the correction, thereby creating the same thing in the second column that I thought I was uh, correcting in the first column? Or in other words, the second column was right, but he presumed it was wrong, uh, <coughs> being in the wrong column but making the right count. He created disorder out of order. I suppose anything is possible. I, I would think, though, that uh, the supervisor or Gutenberg himself would simply, uh, in an irate manner, point to the text and say, look at that. And it wouldn't be 17 lines down. It would only be the third line down and the fourth line down. Uh, or, or if not pointing it out, marking it uh, on the copy as to what would be corrected. And yet, I, I would grant you what you proposed is, is conceivable. Uh, yet, I, I do have that representation from Diderot, uh, which shows a long compositor stick, one line only, and it seems to me of uh, the several possibilities, mine still remains the more plausible one. But I freely admit, and have admitted in this paper more than once, uh, that the truth of the matter will be forever beyond us. Again, this is a matter I skipped over in the, but do allude to in the paper. Uh, as you well know, sir, uh, <clears throat> medieval Latin is full of abbreviations and uh, contractions and could easily be adjustable as one moves from one mode of representation, manuscript, to, to print. Uh, one might go off on one line, but one could recapture, recapture ground uh, on the next. Uh, there are many... Uh, 
annotations as I've observed in our copies, some of them in that same book hand and it's indistinguishable from from the printed work uh, itself. Exactly the same width of the letters, uh, the same height occupying the same distance uh, uh, laterally. So I think it would be quite feasible to move from manuscript to print and from print back to manuscript as occasionally happened where the printed copy was uh, very scarce and keep within the page, keep within the line and the column. We are dealing here with, of course, thousands and thousands of sorts. I counted the number of sorts on that 41-line page, that crucial page, uh, and there are uh, 2,500 different sorts on the page, plus at least 500 blanks. So <clears throat> with that many little pieces to deal with, I think the adjustments could be made within the page if any adjustments were required. No, because uh, if space were allowed for the illustration, the two or three or four or five line uh, initial letter, however it was to be ornament, you would still have type over in the remaining portion of the column. These blanks, these partial blanks on the page are completely blank. That is the last 13 lines, for instance, in the right column in one instance is blank. You could move a lot of text into those 13 lines beyond the initial letter. And there, there are quite a few instances of that where the printer wisely, in fact, necessarily chose not to move forward type because if he did, it would dislocate all the rest of his copy. He would depart from the facsimile precedent that he was following. The, the space left blank for rubrication? Uh, Oh, uh, I, it accounts for it. Uh, of course, it's all negative evidence that I'm presenting at that, at that point. Of course, we see all this in, in the manuscript Bibles. We do see those blanks. And I, it thinks, uh, I think it would be up to the paleographers, those expert in the earlier periods of manuscript production, to come up with theories as to how all this happened. Manuscripts would be apportioned out to different scribes, just as in the time of uh, printed production, the printed uh, stints would be apportioned out uh, to different compositors and uh, pressmen. But in every case, you see, I'm transferring all difficulties back to the manuscript all disorders back to the manuscript or prior manuscripts even before the one Gutenberg used uh, and uh, thus leaving all the problems uh, in some other area rather than in the Gutenberg Bible.
I think the prior manuscript copy was split in the same way the printed copy was. The second scribe started on 129. Uh, right. Uh, perhaps again they thought uh, they could get more on the page. I mean, I'm, again, we could transfer the arguments that have been applied to Gutenberg back to the back to the uh, uh, back to the scribes, the scriptorum. Um, I have no adequate explanation why they would start with 40 and then decide to move on to 41 and then quickly to 42. There are various instances of manuscripts in existence uh, which are represented in the standard accounts in Neil Carr's um, survey of medieval manuscripts and elsewhere of manuscript Bibles existing in, and that's represented as 40-42. Uh, the irregularity does exist in the manuscripts whether it exists in exactly the pattern that we see it here in the Gutenberg Bible, I don't know, because the descriptions of the manuscript Bibles in every case, even in Neil Carr's uh, elaborate uh, accounts, uh, are not sufficiently detailed to give us a clue. I simply say that uh, such manuscripts of such variable lengths do exist. Can I answer your questions one at a time? The usual supposition, of course, is that Gutenberg simply had a hollowed-out piece of wood, a single piece of wood, certainly not an adjustable compositor stick uh, in metal. Uh, I, I hit upon the Diderot simply because uh, among all accounts of the compositorial practice, the, all the others, uh, in the first place, suppose a stick holding two lines or three lines or ten lines of type with adjustable uh, measures, whereas here in uh, elaborately illustrated in Diderot, uh, by accident, uh, is a circumstance which indeed uh, allows me the inference that possibly something like this could have gone on in the, in the 15th century. I say no more than that. But I have to set up a circumstance where we're moving lines one at a time in order to affect this transposition of one.
That wouldn't be necessary. Well, obviously, I uh, would not agree agree to that. Um, the fact that a line is moved, a complete line across the page is moved, one down and one up, I think would be an eventuality that would have to occur either as the type was being moved into its final position or occurred after all the type had been withdrawn and again returned. Uh, how it could happen when it uh, has all been set in an orderly manner, I th think still escapes uh, a reasonable explanation. And as you say, the use of galleys is something which, so far as we know, was not uh, even mentioned in bibliographical literature until 1765. Well, so am I. Uh, at the imposition stage, composition has been has been has gone forward regularly in consecutive order as we read it. The third line was set up before the fourth, set up in its single line stick. Then the, the companion, having gone off somewhere, and I can only guess where for a moment, uh, the compositor goes on and sets up the fourth line. His companion comes back. There are now two lines ready, and he accidentally picks up one for the other. Not under my theory, you see. If you have to, mine would accommodate two compositors at the same press. 
or one compositor who never moves from the case. His only job is to set the type in the stick. And I, I make an analogy again, I'm afraid I slipped over to, in my presentation to you, to the uh, paper makers where you have two, uh, two molds to a vat and you have two people working in tandem there. Uh, so now in the compositorial technique, I'm supposing that there were two. One whose function is simply to set the type stick by stick and the companion who's actually to move the type in an efficient way to the form. Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, I'm, I'm saying two compositors to a press. It's Corsten who says that all this nonsense about six presses has proved to be an embarrassment uh, to German scholarship, and he is the one that's proposing three. Well, I will take any number. I much prefer three to six. It sounds a little more reasonable. But then he gets into a difficulty because... find that hard to believe. I find it also hard to believe <clears throat> that you would have two different compositors, each working in a different case, supplying one pressman. I don't know how you could allocate copy uh, efficiently uh, that way, and how you would, uh, once copy, once type is used, how it could be distributed in any equitable manner. Uh, these but these these spaces, whether full page or part page, are most of them occurring within the recognized compositorial stints, not at the end or, or at the beginning. And that makes them all the more unaccountable. I leave that to others since it's not essentially a part of my argument, I don't think. Uh, we'll have to wait until the cyclotron has done its business to see how far these stints go according to the composition of the ink.
Again, uh, as I've said a few minutes ago, it's, it's conceivable that this accident could have occurred in manuscript. I think it would be, because it is a manual dislocation, I think it's more apt to occur with the manual movement of type. I've been toying with the idea, it's quite apart from my argument, that the business of setting across two columns might well have been the practice of the scribes as they duplicate one manuscript after another, producing their own facsimiles uh, in manuscript. Wouldn't it be more efficient to go across the page to avoid smudging of ink and so forth and so on than if you went down the left-hand column and over on the right? You would finish off your, your writing right across. Nobody's ever investigated this because I guess it never occurred to them that this is a possibility. The mind instinctively resists that, but I, one has to remember that most printers set by forms whenever they can hate to set serially, setting by forms, that is to say, setting uh, page one, then page four, then page five, then page eight, or more properly, pages two, then three, then six, then seven, then one, four, five, and eight in octavo in position. Is it faster, more efficient, and uh, less bothersome way of setting, especially if you have a good text to work from? Who seems to be the best of times, the worst of times, the person who is scholarship, I am much better informed as to the extent of my ignorance Thank you. Bye.